Hello, I'm Holly Baker. I'm the podcast producer in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, and I will be your host for this podcast series on the Florida Constitutions. In 2018, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the current Florida Constitution. This podcast series will look back at all the constitutions in Florida, starting with the first Florida Constitution, drafted in 1838. These interviews were recorded at the 2018 annual meeting of the Florida Conference of Historians. The day-long sessions examined each of the Florida constitutions and discussed how they addressed the concerns of their time. The sessions took place at the Old Senate Chamber in the Florida Historic Capitol Museum in Tallahassee. Robert Casanello, an associate professor of history at the University of Central Florida, and Julian Chambliss, a professor of English at Michigan State University, moderated the discussion. Andrew Frank is the Alan Morris Professor of History from Florida State University, and in his interview, we take a turn away from Tallahassee and Florida Constitutional Conventions to look at the constitutions of the Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians. Let's listen. Well, thank you for joining me. Do you mind introducing yourself to our audience? My name is Andrew Frank. I'm a professor at Florida State University. Um, so. We brought you here to talk about the Seminole and the Miccosukee constitutions that come about in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And can you tell us why there was a need for the Miccosukees and the Seminoles to create a constitution, especially one at such a, a late time in their existence? So the Seminoles and Miccosukees have been residents um, and a political units or separate units in Florida for a very long time, uh, more than 100 years. And in the early 1950s, there was a conservative pushback against uh, basically the Indian's New Deal, and there was a pushback against um, self-determination for Native peoples. And under the Eisenhower administration, there was a policy called termination. Um, this was in 1954, where the Seminoles were told that their rights to common lands, what was reservation land, which was established in the early 20th century, um, and their right to be considered a community was going to be terminated. Um, and this was a status that was reserved for or targeted to native peoples across the country who were English-speaking, private property owning, had democratic governments, um, who had all the markings for what in the 1950s would have been perfect assimilation. And for some reason, the Seminoles, and they're all, if they were Indians in Florida, they were deemed Seminoles, they were put on this list. Um, despite the fact that the characteristics that were typically used to get on the list did not apply to them. And they protested. Um, they went, a handful went to Washington, D.C., uh, but they held hearings on the Dania Reservation, which is now Hollywood, and also at Big Cypress and Brighton, uh, fundamentally saying, we can't be terminated, right? This is, this is ridiculous. And the response from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the Department of the Interior was fundamentally, okay, you exist, but you don't have a centralized government. You exist, we know we fought three wars with you. You exist, you have reservation land, but we need to have a mechanism by which we can actually deal with you, a unified, solitary voice. So create a council, a centralized government, um, and that was the compromise they came up with. So in 1954, they begin work on creating a constitution, which um, carries with it a sense that this is the start of government. And it really was. It's a, a government charter, for lack of a better word. So the Seminoles put together a constitution. They put it up for ratification in 1957. Um, and it passes 241 to 5, which should give you a sense of two things. Those who voted for it were overwhelmingly for it, but there was only 246 votes. Um, it was a very, very small minority of actual eligible voters who voted. 
the majority of people who were native in Florida did not vote. In fact, in the Miccosukee Reservation, which is down on Tamiami Trail, hardly anyone voted. They opted out. They thought the whole thing was a sham. And instead, what they insisted on was an ancient form of governance that was local, where clan leaders and medicine men became political leaders, and they thought that this was the only legitimate form of government. Um, and even if it meant termination, they wanted to be left alone. And that was, in essence, what led to the Seminoles passing this charter. It gets ratified by the United States, um, basically get the stamp of approval, and now we have a, a Seminole National Council. So that's in 57. Immediately after that, the Miccosukees down in Tamiami Trail, they are horrified by this because now there is a council speaking on their behalf and authorized to do so that they really reject both culturally as well as politically. And so they start forming their own government. And in all sorts of ways, they're able to kind of carve out a separate political entity in 1963. And they create a constitution that looks remarkably similar to the Seminole one, but they call themselves the Miccosukee Nation not the Seminole tribe. Great. In what ways do these constitutions reflect their time? Both constitutions were written under the auspices of the United States. Right? They were written to be approved not just domestically as tribal members, but they were written to be approved by the Secretary of the Interior. And so it worked very much with the unicameral legislation where every reservation was to have representation on the council, and there were three for the Seminoles case. So Big Cypress had one represented, Brighton had another, um, and Dana later Hollywood got a third. And then they had at-large bids. And so this was one person, one vote. If you're over 21, you get one vote. And it was highly democratic, which cut against all sorts of traditions of how power was traditionally used in Seminole society. So it reflected very much this idea of um, anti-communism of the 1950s. It re represented this idea of one must have a solitary voice, uh, that this is a, a, that consensus is the key to good governance. Um, and so in very many ways, these charters um, reflected the outside. But on the inside, they did a pretty remarkable job of finding a way to articulate how the tribe has the right to deal with the state government and the federal government. So for the first time in US history, the Seminoles were deemed a legitimate form of government, which for US constitution and state constitution, it gave them an equal footing. It gave them a state-to-state -state relationship, um, not just with the federal government, but also with the state of Florida, which ultimately gives them a tremendous amount of leverage um, over the next 50 some odd years. Okay, can we see any political philosophies or ideologies that are embedded in this constitution? Um, so there are two. I'm not sure if I'd call them ideology or if I'd call them impulses. Um, and they are speaking to the two masters, if you will. So locally, it is about self-determination, um, with this idea that Native people should have the right and obligation to care for themselves. And so embedded within this constitution is not simply a form of government, but the responsibility of the tribe to meet the health, education, and other forms of welfare of its constituents. And so the tribe is, as a council, is obligated to take whatever resources they get from the federal government and to use them um, for the greater good of, of the people, not just for the council itself. And the second part is this democratic impulse, which in many ways was fought by domestically, but insisted upon the United, by the United States. So it was a one person, one vote, regardless of one's background, if you will. So medicine men and clan elders saw their power 
at least politically diminished, even if they could wield it socially or, or locally. And so these are the two impulses that really come to define the, the Seminoles in, in 57, and it gets carried over in the Miccosukees in, in 63. The third thing that I'd mention is, um, and you can kind of see it develop, the Seminoles had a very clean definition of who was a citizen. If you were on the census rolls in 1957, you were a citizen. And so they gave themselves an out that they had five years to contest if you were on or not on the roll. But if you were there, you were a citizen. There was no notion of blood quantum. They didn't particularly care who your mother or father was. Um, you were, if you were a member of this community, you were a citizen and therefore a voter and eligible for office holding. By 63, the Miccosukees had imposed a blood quantum rule where you had to have at least one parent be considered full blood. And the Seminoles, at the same moment, they articulated something new as well, and they went to one quarter, where they started paying much closer attention to, to heritage, not just residents. And so you can kind of see these attempts over the course of time for Seminoles to um, redefine their constituency, if you will. Wow. Um, what about uh, political debates that, that were nurtured as a result of these constitutions? So again, there are internal debates amongst Native people themselves, and there are external debates. Um, the external ones are the easiest ones to describe. So ever since 1957, um, these Seminoles have been at the vanguard of the attempt of Native peoples nationwide to assert sovereignty. And this begins um, with the fight for environmental regulations or water rights. Um, it continues up through tax-free cigarettes and bingo and other forms of gaming. So they are the test case at the fifth court, the fifth appellate court. Um, Seminole tribers Bob Butterworth, who was then sheriff of Broward County, and the Seminoles put together this um, rather large bingo hall, and they break um, state ordinances that give a limit of how much um, the jackpot could be. And instead of something like five thousand dollars, they put up twenty-five thousand dollars. And Butterworth comes in and literally locks the doors and tries to shut them down. And this is the case that opens the door nationwide for what we now know as um, casino gaming, right? So this, um, this leads to um, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So this becomes one of the, the major things. Under Bob Graham, they're the ones who, um, they get themselves at the table for everything that we know about water as it deals with Lake Okeechobee. Um, they get a right to a certain amount of water coming out of Lake Okeechobee and a certain amount of purity of that water. And so they are able to use sovereignty to put themselves at the table um, not on the same footing, but as equal footing, right? So they are able to give tribal sovereignty the same type of power as state sovereignty or federal sovereignty, that all three um, are in operation at the same time. So outside of the tribe, that has been an ongoing struggle that we still are dealing with today. Domestically, the tribe, um, I mentioned earlier blood quantum, that being one of the many constituencies uh, or issues that arise, um, but there are all sorts of things that the Seminoles have had to deal with. So the first and foremost was this idea of a council itself has no power. So at the very beginning, there was a democratically elected council that would receive money from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to spend basically as the Bureau of Affairs wanted it to be spent, which was really a reflection of everything that occurred before that. The Bureau of Department of um, the Interior would give the BIA money and the superintendent would, would operate it. And so this gave a little semblance of local control, but the local control was very minimal. Over the course of time, the Seminoles have obtained independent resources. 
right? This is why tax-free cigarettes in the 70s and bingo in the 80s and gaming in the 90s becomes important not just for standard of living but for politics. Because now with independent resources, they get to choose where the roads get built. They get to choose how they're going to spend the money that they earn. And so over the course of time, like all governments, they have to decide, one, how powerful will this council be? But also, what are the responsibilities of a government to its people? Um, is the responsibility to give a check to every family? Is the responsibility to provide education, health care, and senior services? And that has been the, uh, the debate amongst themselves um, since 57. Um, but with more responsibilities or more financial um, well-being, um, they have more choices. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Andrew Frank from Florida State University discussing the Seminole and Miccosukee Constitutions. Thanks for listening. In the next and final episode of this podcast series on Florida Constitutions, Mary Adkins from the University of Florida Law School talks about the 1968 Constitution. Please join us for that episode. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation, and if you did enjoy it, please recommend it to others. Post it on your Facebook or Twitter page for others to find. This series was produced by Robert Casanello and Julian Chambliss. We'd like to thank David Proctor and Jesse Hingson with the Florida Conference of Historians for assisting in the recording of this series. You can find out more about the Florida Conference of Historians at www.floridaconferenceofhistorians.org.